2: I'm Ido Vock in Berlin.
3: I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C.
2: It's Friday the 27th of August.
3: You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman.
2: Thank you for joining us.
3: Well, the big international story of this week is undoubtedly Afghanistan. And so before we get to the bulk of this week's conversation and our guest, the discussion with whom is not on Afghanistan primarily, and also we should say was recorded prior to yesterday's attack at the Kabul airport, Ido and I are going to talk about the latest in Afghanistan. So as I sort of just referenced yesterday on Thursday, there was a terrorist attack outside the Kabul airport. The local ISIS affiliate has claimed credit and and is believed by U.S. intelligence to be responsible. Dozens of people died, including Tens of Afghan civilians and thirteen U.S. Marines. Ido, let's turn it over to you for your. You wrote about the attack yesterday. Could you tell us a bit more about it?
2: Intelligence agencies from the U.S., U.K., and Australia had had incredibly precise warnings the, yesterday morning about the potential for a large-scale terrorist attack by. This group, ISIS-Khorasan, which is the kind of, as you said, local affiliate of ISIS, they knew when it was going to happen. A UK minister, a British minister, went on the morning broadcast round and said he had been given lines to take if the attack happened while he was doing the broadcast round. And in the event it happened a few, few hours later but it happened pretty much as expected where the intelligence agencies said it would it would happen in the manner that that they said it would which is really quite a, quite an impressive feat of intelligence gathering but obviously many many afghans did not heed the warnings to stay away from the airport and so they were crowding the airport just as they have been for the past few days hoping to get a seat on on a flight out which now is uh, is looking very very unlikely because the evacuation operation from the US and, and, and UK and others is winding down and from many countries has, has already wound down. We have a very good explainer out on the website today by Shiraz Maha about ISK and their, their relationship to, to the Taliban. So what what is most interesting in that piece is that Shiraz highlights that ISIS-K and the Taliban are very strongly opposed. So it was not in the Taliban's interest to allow this terrorist attack to, to happen and to kill U.S. troops and Afghan civilians and and disrupt the proceeding, the the, the evacuation operations before the evacuation deadline because ISIS-K I, and the Taliban are opposed and, and pretty much at war and have fought in battle against each other. ISIS-K was able to essentially outsmart, outsmart the Taliban and conduct this this terrorist attack. Obviously, this, in the immediate term, kind of uh, highlights that the Taliban is not able to secure Kabul, is not able to adequately provide security to to the airport in accordance with the agreement signed between the U.S. and the Taliban, the withdrawal agreement. But it also highlights one of the most persistent fears about Taliban rule which has its origins in the last time the Taliban ruled the country from 1996 to 2001, when Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda were given safe haven in Afghanistan and essentially conducted uh, conducted their operations from, from there, including planning for the 9-11 attacks. And although al-Qaeda and the Taliban at the time were essentially uh, pretty friendly and sort of Mullah Omar was was known to be pretty sympathetic to at least hosting Al Qaeda even and Osama bin Laden, even if he didn't they weren't always ideologically completely aligned. And this time ISIS K and the Taliban are viscerally opposed and and have different interests and different objectives. This fear from Western governments that essentially Afghanistan is going to have a bunch of ungoverned spaces where groups like ISIS-K can sort of build up their operations, build, you know, training camps, attract recruits from, from all over the place to train for terrorism and and all these kinds of operations that this attack really highlights that fear and this is this is so early in the game, in events it's before the withdrawal has, has completed that that's really the fear going out, i think beyond the sort of more more immediate consequences with the u s and on the withdrawal if, operation and obviously on on local afghans too
3: yeah there i mean i think there are a few things on the on the u s side firstly i, I misspoke it, it was 13 U.S. service members, the majority of whom were Marines, not 13 Marines. Um, Second of all, I, I completely agree with you that I think that the part of the tragedy of this is that intelligence knew that this was coming, right? So actually yesterday, Ito and I were talking about the dispute between other G7 leaders and Biden about the August 31st withdrawal. Other G7 leaders wanted more time to get out. Biden said, no, it has to be the 31st. The reason he part of the reason that he said it has to be the 31st is that he had quite publicly said that they believed that a terrorist attack was coming, right? And that being at the airport, that that the longer that they were at the airport, they being Americans and other foreigners and Afghans, the greater the, 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 with every day, the likelihood of an attack increased. I would also note that the response to this in the United States yesterday, I would describe as bone shelling, right? Like and to me demonstrated that the United States well, let me put it this way: you had Senator Lindsey Graham say that the retaking of Bagram would put our military at risk, but I think those involved in the operation would gladly accept that risk because it would restore our nation, our our honors a nation, and save lives. You had on on you know the news station CNN, Jake Tapper had on former ambassador to Afghanistan Ryan Crocker and Ryan Cracker was asked, you know, what what do you say to those who say that this shows that enough lives have been lost and, and that we should come home? And the former ambassador said, yeah, that's one way to end a war, surrender. It was just extremely militaristic and kind of flag waving and suggested to me that we have not learned very much in the two decades since we got into Afghanistan. I would also note that Biden's address to the nation, which was a sort of a mashup of both Legitimate reasons and kind of reasonings for why this happened did not, did, you know, did not backpedal on the withdrawal or, or given any indication that it would be, you know, delayed or extended. And I would also say that he vowed to get revenge on on those who did this, the place and time of our choosing, I think you said. And I think that we should expect the United States to work with the Taliban in achieving that goal. Why do I say this? First of all, it has happened before, right? The U.S. was already, even while they were fighting a war against each other, working with the Taliban to fight ISIS-K or, or helping the Taliban fight ISIS-K. Second of all, apparently they've been sharing intelligence to prevent attacks that it's came out that the Taliban has has helped prevent other ISIS-K attacks. So you're now in this surreal situation where although the U.S. was just fighting a war with the Taliban for 20 years I think we're, you know, we're now in the timeline, we could very easily see the US provide support to the Taliban to fight ISIS-K.
2: Wouldn't that be a a sight to see the the Taliban as an ally in the fight against international terrorism?
3: We are well and truly um, down the rabbit hole.
2: Through the looking glass, indeed. Right, exactly. Um, just Just on your point about Biden, I've seen some sort of more dovish commentators say that typically the way previous US administrations used to respond to terror attacks was to be sort of goaded into military action that basically they, they couldn't win. This is the argument. I've seen some more dovish commentators be quite positive about Biden's response because he, he didn't commit to staying longer, to you know, reversing the withdrawal or anything. He said we're going to stick to the current timetable. We're going to be out by the by the thirty first. Obviously, he said he'd respond, but it, that that didn't come with a sort of you know reverse sort of the policy or anything, which is quite an interesting shift and and said probably right whether you agree with it or not. Certainly different from what came before,
3: which I think is part of the reason that there was this kind of this this very intense response from let's call it some in the in you know the Washington establishment be it politicians or pundits or former national security officials or, or you know career national security officials it is a different response and I think we will see whether it's better or worse but I think it was it was interesting to me that that his response was so stark and how different it was right and also that the instinct of so many was still like that day to you know we have to go back in and we have to retake Bagram Air Base. And it was just, you, I mean, to me, it was, I was 11 in 2001, right? So to me, it was clarifying because you kind of see, oh, this is how, you know, this is how we get into, get into this in the first place. As I mentioned, the rest of this was recorded prior to yesterday's attacks at the airport, and is primarily not on Afghanistan, although we do come back to it at the very end. So Listen through if that's that's why you're here. And with that, we will go to our guest. I am delighted today to introduce Ted Johnson. He is the director of the Fellows Program at the Brennan Center and the author of the new book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. Ted, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: So you wrote for us last September, September 2020, on the threat of voter suppression. So obviously that was ahead of the 2020 election. We are almost a year later. For those who have not been following the story of voting rights and voter suppression in the United States, can you tell our listeners what's been happening in the last year?
4: What we've seen leading up to the election and certainly post-election are a range of states putting forward and passing new laws that complicate the access to the ballot for particular groups of folks, uh, not just passing laws but also executives, mayors, governors, regulating access to the ballot in hopes frankly of shaping the electorate in a way that would be more favorable We're seeing to, to their part many of these new laws and regulations being put into place are in states with Republican gubernatorial and congressional leadership or state assembly leadership, and often in states that are purple you know hotly contested between Democrats and Republicans. Or where the fear of demographic change forecasts that the state will soon be purple, and they're trying to sort of head that, that change off at the pass. So this is, frankly, very connected to American history since the inception of our country, and certainly throughout our entire existence, we have had the parties trying to shape. The electorate such that some people can vote and others either are excluded entirely or their path to the to the ballot is complicated. This is more of the same. And it's not just at the state level, but now we have the federal level, both at the executive, legislative and judicial branches weighing in on this question of, of voting rights, voter fraud, and the, the proper way to conduct legitimate elections.
3: Yeah. So I and I want to get more into both the history of this and where we go from here, but I sort of see this as a continuation, not just of America's deeply racist history, but, but specifically of the 2020 election, right? Where Donald Trump tried to discredit the election before it happened, while it was happening. You had a mob storm the Capitol to stop the certification of the election and and, and what were they stopping the certification of, right? It was states where mail-in votes had come in later or where votes from cities had been counted later, right? Where Uh, And and I think we can just say it, that it was cities with high concentrations of Black voters, that they were physically trying to overturn that, right? That didn't work. And so now you say, well, okay, if we couldn't change the outcome of the election after, we will change the rules of the game beforehand to stop who gets to, basically to stop the votes before they're cast. Is that like too conspiratorial of me to see it as, as a continuation of the 2020 election and of January 6th?
4: Not at all. Not at all. This is when folks don't get the election outcomes that they want, and particularly those that are behaving in a liberal, undemocratic ways, which frankly it seems to be clustered a bit on in the Republican Party. Then they just seek to invalidate the election. We have had a conversation in this country, a long-standing one, about the merits of direct democracy and the merits of sort of representative democracy. But at every turn, we have erred on the side of representative democracy. That is filtering the votes of the people, the voice of the people, through electoral bodies or representative bodies. And what we're seeing now is, uh, in fact, we saw, I think it was senator from, from Utah, Mike Lee, I think it was, who said, look, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. So if if the elected representatives decide to change the outcome of an election, This is true to our republic because we have always allowed elected people, electors or folks in state assemblies, Congress, et cetera, have the final say on who wins elections. And so this is, you know, whether we either believe in universal suffrage or we don't. But the events of November 2020 and the presidential election between that date and January 6th, it is a, a conversation about who are the legitimate participants in our democracy and what are legitimate outcomes when the people's voice is is expressed in a way that those with power don't appreciate.
2: In practical terms, what do these restrictions look like? And I suppose an extension to that is people like Ross Duthat. I've heard him make the argument that the supposed voter restrictions that are being put in place by Republican states are merely turning the clock back to how voting rights were before COVID. So they're not some kind of unprecedented assault on voting rights, but they're just rescinding, whether right or wrong, they're just rescinding the additional facilitation of voting that was put in place because of the pandemic. How do you evaluate that argument?
4: There's two pieces. Uh, there are multiple pieces, but here, here's two of them. The first is, in practical terms, these laws do things like change the form of acceptable ID that allow people to cast their vote. It changes the ways and the timeframes that people can register to vote prior to participating in an election. It changes the polling locations of elections. It changes people's status to participate if based on how many times they voted in the previous four, five, six years. And so voter suppression, these things basically play with the rules of how to become eligible to vote, And then how to participate in the election, and then how to have your vote counted. And by screwing with the regulations or or the laws that govern these things, you are able to shape the electorate such that those who are more likely to support your party have an easier go of it than those who are unlikely to support your party. For example, in the state of Texas, a personal ID is uh, required to participate in the election. One type of acceptable ID is a gun license. One type of unacceptable government ID is the consort issued by the University of Texas system. So 80% of people who have gun licenses in Texas are older and white. And two thirds of the young people of color in the state of Texas have university IDs as their primary form of ID. So by accepting the gun license, but not accepting the university student ID, you are basically tilting the electorate in favor of older white voters and away from younger people of color. The former are more likely to vote Republican, the latter are more likely to vote for Democrats. On the other end of this, some may say, well, what's the big deal about showing voter ID? Or what's the big deal about having to register to vote? Or what's the big deal about having to comply with a certain set of standards to ensure the security of the vote or that people who are voting are, are who they say they are? The issue is that if the rules change after every election, then people are trying to hit a moving target just to participate in our democracy. So it's not the rules per se that are bad, even though, as I've just described, some of them absolutely do have racially disparate impacts. The problem is the ever-moving target of how to qualify to participate in a democracy should not be the standard. And this is what's happening by making it difficult from an administrative standpoint to um, be eligible to participate in, in our elections. That is the thing that many voting rights advocates are, are uh, protesting against, and not just that there are requirements to participate.
2: In terms of the actual effect that this might have on elections, do we have any idea of if if these rules had been in place, say, at the last presidential election, would they have been enough to swing crucial states or, and and perhaps therefore the election? Or is it kind of more of a moral point, as you've uh, quite starkly pointed out, but in terms of actually affecting the results of an election, it might not have a very widespread impact?
4: This is a good question. And I think the evidence is sort of up in the air. If we're thinking specifically about presidential elections, there's one set of answers that may not pertain to if we're thinking about mayoral elections, or even congressional elections, because of the the smaller uh, number of voters that participate in those. And so, you know, smaller number, a smaller electorate means that the margins can flip flip results. Here's the big issue, though. Because of voter mobilization efforts, particularly in Black America, every time these legislative bodies or these executives push forward laws that complicate access to the polls for Black voters, there is a grassroots movement to educate Black voters on what the new rules are so that the new voter suppression laws and, and regulations that are passed aren't as effective as they otherwise would be. And then what we see is high, relatively high black turnout. And people say, well, see, I told you voter suppression isn't real because if it was, these black folks wouldn't have been able to participate. And the answer in many cases, especially in 2020, is wrong. Black voters care so much about voting that they learned all the hurdles, all the barriers that that these bodies erected and they learned how to scale them and participated anyway. So just because the spirit, the energy, the enthusiasm of Black voters overcame The voter suppression laws and hurdles that were put in their place doesn't mean those laws weren't intended to suppress votes it just means they weren't as successful they 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 weren't as committed to the cause or, or or effective in its outcome as black folks were to participate so whether or not voter suppression works is largely a function of a community's ability to educate its voters on the process of participating and then getting those folks to the polls on election day and we have seen in, in both cases where sometimes people are so discouraged from these new laws that are put in place that they just stay home. And we've seen where some people are so angered or mobilized by the fact that someone's trying to take their voice away, that they'll stand in line for eight hours just to cast their ballot, to, to show the, the government that their voice will not be, be robbed.
3: I think it's important to note here before we dive into what is and is not being done to counter these laws, that part of the reason that state governments are able to pass these laws is because of what happened to the Voting Rights Act. So could you sort of put this into the broader U.S. historical context um, and why the 2013 gutting of the Voting Rights Act was so damning for voting rights in America?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So we know that in 1965, the United States passed the, the Voting Rights Act of, of 65. And what this basically does is for the millions of disenfranchised Black folks that lived in the South in particular, they were now given access to the franchise. They were now able to able to participate in elections. And in this Voting Rights Act, there are five sections of it, and it lays out all the things that need to happen to not only enfranchise these folks, but ensure that when states try to maneuver around the law to remove these people from the electorate, that they have a lot of hurdles to clear in order to do so. One of the most effective tools in the Voting Rights Act of 65 was this this pre-clearance requirement for states or districts that had a history of racial discrimination when it comes to voting before they implemented any changes to, to voting laws or voting regulations in their state or their district they had to ask the federal government to clear these changes. and The federal government would look at these changes to see if there was a racially disparate impact that may result from these changes. What the Supreme Court did in 2013 in the Shelby County v. Holder case was say that the formula to determine which districts, which states had to submit to preclearance was outdated and no longer valid. And so it doesn't actually say that preclearance isn't needed. It just says the formula to determine who needs to ask for preclearance is no good. And what we see immediately after this holding is that a number of states and a number of places that would have otherwise had to ask for preclearance started implementing voting laws within the hours after the Supreme Court's ruling comes down and it's not stopped and in, in the nearly a decade since hundreds of laws across the country have been passed that would have other probably have, would would have been struck down if preclearance was required. So now we're at this place where the Supreme Court says we're not saying preclearance isn't constitutional. We are saying that the formula needs updating. And what the Democrats have just done just this past week is passed the John Lewis Voting Rights Act which, among other things, provides a new formula, just as the Supreme Court asked, to determine preclearance. And it passed the House, but on a strictly party-line vote, where every Republican voted against this. Just a decade ago, Mm -hmm. a, a decade and a half ago, under Republican President George Bush, the Senate voted 98 to zero to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And here we are a decade and a half later, and not a single Republican in the House Will take the steps necessary to up to update the the pre-clearance formula so that the Voting Rights Act can can uh, regain the power that it lost in in 2013. Not only that, but now other sections of the Voting Rights Act are under attack. Section two was just visited by the Supreme Court in this past term, and Section two basically what was happening is uh, if laws are passed that aren't intentionally racially discriminatory, but have the effect of being racially discriminatory then those would be uh, could, could be challenged under the voting rights act the supreme court said not so fast that states have the right to set laws and if those things have racially disparate outcomes but without the the, the mens rea of racism that the sort of the mental component of it then these laws are permissible so the se- section 2 has been weakened or in the last uh, supreme court term alongside section 4 and 5 from from several years ago this is where we are with voting rights in the united states and the remedy should be through congress and we have a hyperpartisan intransigent congress that that isn't willing to to do what it takes to protect people's right to access the polls
3: right so so this this bill passed the house schumer so senate majority leader chuck schumer has said that the senate will take up voting rights again in september i think i mean not to be a cynic again based on what we've seen so far in the senate i think it's extremely unlikely that we will see positive movement on this, right? Both because it's, it's, as you said, appreciation of the severity of this issue is divided on party lines, but not only that, right? Because you have some moderate Democrats who basically say they're not going to, th- 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 anything they agree to on this has to be bipartisan, which to me sort of overlooks the fact that one party is very consciously trying to put in laws in various parts of this country that will make it more difficult for for Black people and other minorities...
4: Yes, absolutely. ...to vote.
3: I guess why... Like, it, it just seems to me at least that moderate Democrats maybe don't appreciate what's happening here, right? That this is like... That this, this is an existential moment for, for our... One, for their ability to keep their jobs and stay in leadership, but, but two, for our democracy. I guess why... It, it, it just seems like if you speak to voting rights activists, this moment is like a five alarm fire. And if you then read the comments of moderate Democrats in the Senate, it seems like, you know, maybe it's a little tinder. What is the difference there?
4: Yeah. So, th- I mean, you're absolutely right that there's some moderate Democrats who are playing real politic with the issue of voting rights, uh, which is to say they recognize that if they go all in with Democrats and force these two bills, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, through Congress without securing a, the, the 60 votes uh, necessary, but which is to say getting rid of the filibuster and then by a simple majority forcing uh, adoption of these two statutes, they feel like their jobs will be lost because they'll go back to their states and have to face tough competition in states that have large and, and Manchin's case, Senator Manchin's case from West Virginia, very large Republican majorities. And so they are saying, is this the hill I want to die on? because there is a likelihood that if I support this, that I may not be reelected. And so this is a concern, of course, that every senator has, every elected official has, with whether decisions they make will put their jobs at jeopardy at a risk, in, in jeopardy. But on a question like voting rights, maybe losing your job is worth ex- the extension of voting rights to other people. Keeping your job and then complicating access to democracy doesn't sound like a winning proposition for either of the public, or for you, unless you're only concerned about your self-interest and and not about the well-being of the country.
3: Also, like, what is the point of you? You know what I mean? Like, what is the point of you having this job if you're not going to use it? Like, is it just for you to have a job? Is that what what we're doing here?
4: You know, the the truth is that even though the vast majority of senators are, are millionaires, this is the best job that they will ever have in their life. And so it's not about money you know it's not about uh, necessarily climbing the ladder it's about giving up a level of status in our society and proximity to power that some of them will be willing to cash in principles in order to hold on to this seat and this isn't a partisan comment this is uh, this is both both parties have these kinds of folks there and if we're talking about the tax rate maybe that's okay. If we're talking about you know whether the Department of Defense gets 750 billion or 740 billion, maybe that's okay. But if we're talking about whether you are going to be a protector of voting rights in a nation with our history, and whether or not you support the strengthening of our democratic institutions and processes, that should be a no-brainer. That shouldn't be a place for compromise. And while we can disagree on the best way to increase voter participation in the country the basic fact that laws that are put in place that have the effect of discriminating against some groups along the color line, that should not be an acceptable compromise that any elected official should be w- willing to make and hold on to their office. And unfortunately, that's where we are in, uh, in America today.
2: How has the federal government and Joe Biden's administration responded to this? Push to restrict voting rights in red states. Is it enough? Will it be enough to counter to counter this wave of legislation? Is enough being done, or are, is, are these laws just going to sail through and be in place for for the next election?
4: So I think one. I think rhetorically, they're raising the stakes. They're calling this Jim Crow two uh, You know, reminiscent of. A very ugly, brutal, violent, explicit denial of, of uh, people's voting rights, and saying that this is basically a, a legislative or administrative equivalent of, of that. I think I, I know that uh, lawsuits have been filed against actors in different states, against you know challenging state law in, in federal court, et cetera. Some of these have been successful and have caused states to roll roll these statutes or, or regulations back. But it, to the question of whether enough is being done, two complications here. One is that the United States basically allows the individual states to determine how they will conduct elections. There are some requirements like you have to be 18. That's federally mandated. You can't discriminate on the basis of race or sex. That's federal. That's constitutionally mandated. But beyond these big sort of sweeping declarations, states have a lot of latitude to do what they like. And for the federal government to challenge a state on these provisions it basically has to show that it's in violation of one of these constitutional principles, that it's racially discriminatory or, or discriminates on the basis of, of sex, for example. And that's a high, high bar to clear. And it's a slow process. So while these challenges to state laws are happening and while the parties are trying to you know, uh, pull together their resources to challenge those folks and get them out of office to ensure you have sort of pro-democracy people in place, the Biden administration is sounding the alarm in its rhetoric. And I think the thing that a lot of progressives want to see happen, that they believe this Democratic Congress should do, is to eradicate the filibuster and eradicate this basically de facto requirement that 60 senators have to agree to something before it can pass and instead just have a simple majority of senators agree to something in order for for it to pass. Biden is very reticent to do so because he feels like it will exacerbate the partisan bickering that's already happening. And that if the Democrats do that this time, when the Republicans regain control of the Congress, whenever that is, that now they have this tool at their disposal, and the thing that protects minority rights, you know, works both ways, just as the thing that allows majorities to prevail can work both ways. So whether or not Biden is doing all that you know, his administration can do to advance voting rights, I think they're doing everything that's practical to do and uh, and are resisting the urge or, or, and, and resisting the calls to be bolder and, and perhaps a, a little bit more less risk averse. And some of the strategies that they're employing to, to protect people's access to the ballot. The biggest thing, though, is that they are calling on grassroots organizations, activists, etc., to step up their efforts to educate folks on how they can participate in democracy wherever it is wherever it is they live so that as these new barriers are erected, that people are able to, to surmount them and, and cast votes anyway.
3: We're going to speak more about the filibuster when we get to our listener question. But before we do, I wanted to ask you, you had an interesting thread on Twitter.com about the question of whether the Democratic Party takes Black voters for granted. And I wanted to give you a moment to expound on that now on our podcast.
4: Look, since the beginning of Black... Americans access to the ballot in in our country, which really begins 1867-ish or so, but is is constitutionally granted in the when the 15th Amendment passes in 1870. Black voters have always voted for the party that was in favor of civil rights protections from the federal government and against the party that was basically anti-civil rights, or the party that allowed those in the minority to have their rights sort of run roughshod over. And Our voting behavior since 1870, 200 or 150 years now, has basically followed this pattern where 90% of Black voters vote for one party because that party is seen as the pro-civil rights party and against the party that is seen as the anti-civil rights party or at best sort of the status quo on civil rights. What this means is that in every congressional, presidential, most gubernatorial elections, that Black voters are presented with two parties and the decision, there is actually isn't very much of a decision because civil rights is always the issue that trumps everything else, national security, energy, education, healthcare. All of these things are second to Black voters to the question of civil rights protections. This results in a Democratic party who knows that Black voters are going to support them because the Republican Party and and its platform is does not stress the importance of civil rights protections. And so the Democratic Party doesn't need to work to win black voters because there's no real viable option in a two party system such as, as we have here. And this w- results in what Professor Paul Freimer calls electoral capture where Black voters are now captured in a party because it's the only viable option. But here is what the Democratic Party has come to recognize, certainly over the last couple of decades, is that while Black voters may not exit to the Republican Party if the Democratic Party isn't responsive to its policy demands, Black voters do have the option of exiting the thing altogether, which is to say choosing not to participate in elections. And that hurts Democrats' far more than it hurts Republicans because Republicans don't win black voters at best. And these days they're getting, you know, one in 11, one in 12 black voters. So this is a problem for not just for black voters, but for our democracy to have one party who needs you, but doesn't have to work to win you. And the other party that isn't, not only isn't trying to win your vote, but is is sort of working with policies that, that will actively hurt your sort of day-to-day life. And this leads to, uh, again, to Capture. What the Democratic Party has learned is that the question is about mobilization. Uh, can we get black voters to the poll by inspiring them, by engaging them, by being responsive to their policy demands and not just by suggesting that we're the only game in town? So either vote for us or allow you know Jim Crow to return. That is not a winning proposition. You know, it's, it's either us or hell or the highway or, or, or my way that doesn't get people to the polls. But when you have our democracy at risk and and of course, black folks are sort of the canary in the coal mine here, then that coupled with the recognition through you know running black candidates uh, that you'll have some voice in the room where decisions are made has proven, uh, certainly since Obama, to be an effective uh, democratic approach to getting black voters to, to the polls. But it doesn't address the, que- the question of electoral capture that I think is a, a really problematic for American democracy.
2: Wherever you are in the world,
3: if you're interested in global affairs,
2: you can subscribe to The New Statesman. On digital, in print, or both, from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com subscribe.
3: That's just $2 a week in America.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want
1: flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company. They offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
3: On that extremely grim note, we are going to turn to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Thanks, Ito. Our listener question from an anonymous listener is goes back to what you were saying earlier, Ted. It's, should Democrats abolish the filibuster knowing Republicans could retake the Senate in 2022 or 2024?
4: Yeah. So there's a couple of answers to this. One is the political answer. That is, is it politically advantageous from from, a, from an election standpoint? Maybe electoral is the better word here. Is there an electoral advantage or disadvantage, penalty, for the Democrats to eradicate the filibuster now? That is to say, will Democrats, if they do this, will they lose the majorities they have in the House and the Senate because they have done something that Americans feel like is, is, is a bridge too far and does too much to disrupt our democracy? That I don't know, but my sense is, that if democrats do get rid of the filibuster that there will be a republican base that feels like and, and maybe the moderate voter that feels like democrats have sort of upped the ante have raised the stakes in our democracy and resent the raising of stakes from the democratic party and maybe punish them for that so there's that that calculation the other is is the sort of pro democracy calculation is what i'll call it and this is the only way to protect our democracy, its institutions, its systems, its processes, is to get rid of this antiquated thing known as the filibuster in order to put forward the ideas and the the structures and the rules necessary to ensure our democracy is stable, secure, and resilient to undemocratic appeals. Now, in that instance, I would say absolutely the Democrats should reform or get rid of the filibuster. Maybe not entirely, but on questions that pertain to democracy, like voting rights, get rid of it. In order to do things to protect democracy, and and not things that will, will will harm the country. So in that instance, I would say yes, it is a good idea. What we're seeing now, and I think what Democratic strategists will be playing out for certainly through the midterms and and prop and you know almost definitely leading into the twenty twenty four presidential election is which of these two arguments puts them in a better position to hold on to power post midterms, uh, which historically isn't likely, but certainly going into the 2024 presidential election to hold on to the White House. And I don't know that they know the answer to that. And I don't know if the American people feel that voting rights generally are under such attack that this is the thing to to eradicate the filibuster over. Certainly voting rights advocates believe that this is the moment. Uh, I think a lot of political scientists believe that this is the moment, the moment long overdue, but does the regular American voter that isn't paying as much attention believe that blowing up the filibuster is the way to protect our democracy? I don't know. Republicans are making the case that it's, again, this is a a, a, sort of overstepping bounds And Democrats are trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. But as I mentioned earlier, the problem will be or the the, the question will be or another part of this calculation is if they do this, are they willing to be on the losing end of a world with no filibuster when Republicans take Congress back? And if they take the White House, what happens then? They use the filibuster to to some success when, when Trump was president and had Congress in his first couple of years as president. What would have happened if that wasn't in place? There are some Democrats that don't want to find that out. And, you know, we'll see which way we go here.
3: Thank you to those of you who sent in your questions. As a reminder, you can keep them coming at podcasts, plural. I have been saying this wrong all these weeks, podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk, or you can just tweet at us. Ted, before we let you go, we always close by looking ahead to the coming week and sharing what in what in world news we will be watching. So you are our guest. We'll go to you first.
4: Excellent. So I will be watching August 31st, which is the date when President Biden has said we will basically be wrapped up in Afghanistan, maybe some lingering forces to get some stragglers out of country. But basically, we, the withdrawal will be complete. On August thirty first, one I'm waiting to see if that actually holds true. If that dead, if we stay to that deadline, I'm waiting to see how much of a force remains into the first week of September, uh, and and for what reason. And the other thing I'm I'm really interested interested to see, and this may take more time. This it will take more time to play out. Was but, but if this withdrawal is a change in American foreign policy that either explicitly a century ago or more implicitly in recent years suggests that we are governed by the idea that our military is here to make the world safe for democracy, that our diplomatic efforts are here to make the world safe for democracy. And in those places where that, that are not safe for democracy, which is about to be Afghanistan um, and presently now and, and certainly going forward, are we willing to abdicate that guiding that, that North Star principle? And suggest that actually we are most concerned with our national interests. And that only extends as far as a threat of terrorism extends and not sort of human rights violations writ large. I think this is a monumental decision for the Biden administration, but it's a it's a moment of reflection for a nation that has prided itself on the extension of democracy and now maybe believing that that job is a bit too hard and requires more resources and more political will than we have to
3: give. And Ido, what will you be watching?
2: Yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't say also Afghanistan. There's obviously the the withdrawal, so we'll wait to see whether, as Ted said, that deadline holds. But I'll also in particular be watching for signs of how the Taliban actually choose to govern. Because their spokespeople, their spokesmen, have been quite vocal in sort of suggesting that the Taliban have changed, that they're not about to impose the same version of absolute barbarism that they imposed during their first stretch in power from 1996 to 2001, where they conducted public executions, amputations, banned listening to music. Women were confined to essentially house arrest. They couldn't leave the house without a male relative and so on. In recent days, we've had a little more clarification on that. So a Taliban spokesperson has said that the requirement for women to leave the house with a male guardian only applies to trips. Over three days, but they will ban music. So, to what extent this is kind of propaganda, and to what extent the Taliban have really changed? Will I think be quite a interesting, but probably more likely horrifying theme in international politics the week ahead? What will you be looking forward to, Emily?
3: You know, I think right now the United States and its allies and partners are in this place where Biden is saying. This hasn't affected our credibility at all. And I've discussed this with everyone and America's allies and partners are saying, we're so mad at you and disappointed in your choices and feel so ignored. And I'm, I'll am i be watching how that conversation on Afghanistan continues, but also how the extent to which it spills over into the rest of Biden's foreign policy, which was so focused on, you know, putting together this multilateral, like pro-democracy team to counter China. How does the way in which the United States approach the withdrawal... Afghanistan affect that. So that is what I will be keeping an eye on this coming week and in many weeks to come. With that, all that is left for us is to say Ted, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today.
4: Thank you. thank you for having me. It was great.
2: If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. As a reminder, we're running a special series on the German federal elections which you can find in this podcast feed called Germany elects.
3: And you can also subscribe for free to the newsletter component of this podcast at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. We would also be remiss if we did not share slash promote that the New Statesman is, the changes are coming to the New Statesman magazine and website next week. So please do visit our website for that too.
2: Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next week.